Our reading this morning is taken from three texts. First, Galatians 2.10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Second, 1 John 3.16-18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And third, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we look at the text that uh, James just read for us, can I ask you to please pray with me? Father, I pray that we would be people who take your word seriously. Not just when it tells us of our hope in Christ, but when it it calls us to live into that hope and to live it out in sacrificial and generous ways to meet the needs of others. I pray that we would not be merely hearers of your word, but we would be cheerful doers of your word and that your your love in our lives would would so transform our hearts that we would be eager for others to to be touched by your love through our care through our help through every way possible that we can seek to meet the needs of not just the poor, but those who are often shoved to the edges, to the margins of our culture and our city, people who are alone, people who are isolated, people who are forgotten. Oh, Lord, give us your heart for the lost, for the lonely, for the poor, for the marginalized, that we could bring to them the light and the life of Jesus Christ with a word of hope and with a work of generous, sacrificial help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at Galatians 2, 1 to 9. If you're a visitor with us, we are in the book of Galatians. Um, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And there's a really handy uh, book that you might want to pick up on the connect table outside. And that is sort of going through the whole series of these 27 weeks. And last week we were in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And today is sort of a pit stop. We're going to make just looking at this one verse, verse 10. Galatians two ten. Because I think we need to settle on this verse for a moment. We need to take this verse seriously. 
and consider what it means for us to remember the poor. This is an important theme that we need to be affected by. Because this is, this is important to God. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible that address the issue of the poor and address the issue of poverty. And that's because ultimately the issue of poverty and the issue of justice for the poor is a deeply theological issue. I don't think that you can think about these things well and wisely unless you think about them biblically and theologically. For example, how we treat the poor says a lot about our attitude towards God Himself. In Proverbs 19.17, it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deed. Or Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his Maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. A number of years ago, Tim Keller wrote a great little book I would encourage you to get. It's called Generous Justice. And this is what Tim Keller writes. He says, God personally identifies very closely with the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, the most powerless and vulnerable members of society. When the Old Testament says God identifies with the poor, that is a strong statement. But it still is basically a figure of speech when he says that in the Old Testament. Not until you come to the New Testament can you fully grasp the degree to which he has done this. See, in the Old Testament, we might say that God identifies with the poor symbolically. When we open the New Testament, what we see there is that God is identifying with the poor literally. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, think about it for a moment with me. He was born in a stable. The Son of God, God incarnate, left aside all His glory that He shared with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He laid it all aside, became not just a man, but He became a baby who was born in some backwater, nowhere town to poor parents. And He was born in a stable. And He was laid to rest you know, as he cooed and cried, maybe, in a feed trough. That was his, his, uh, his pack and play. Later, we see that when, when Jesus' parents took little baby Jesus uh, to the temple, they, they made an offering of two pigeons. And in that culture, an offering of two pigeons was really... Uh, the, the, the offering prescribed to the poorest people in that culture. 
we see as we read through the Gospels that much of his life and ministry was spent among the poor. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus said that he had nowhere to lay his head. He had nowhere that he could count on at the end of a day where he was going to go to sleep. Jesus, think about it with me, Jesus had no fixed address. He relied completely on the sacrificial generosity and kindness of other people. Later on in the Gospels, we read that just days before his death, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. And then later, the night that he was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples in a borrowed room. After Jesus was stripped naked, and crucified, Roman soldiers gambled for the only item of value that he had left in the world, his robe. Jesus died a naked, broken, forsaken, and penniless man. And then his lifeless body was laid in a borrowed tomb. So this morning we have to realize how deeply, how profoundly, how literally God himself identifies with the poor. This morning as we look as a church And think about what it means to remember the poor from Galatians 2.10. I want to do something a little bit different with you. Usually I've got some uh, three points that sound really good. You'd have no idea how much time goes into coming up with those little uh, rhyming uh, points. But but I don't have any of that. I'm nothing clever today. Um, What I want to do with you is... Briefly consider the context of this particular passage in Galatians 2.10. And then I want to zoom out with you for a moment, just briefly to survey what the rest of the Bible has to say about the poor. And then bringing it back to us, I I want to consider some, some practical ways of what considering the poor might look like for us as a congregation here in Kitsilano. And then finally, and I think very importantly, I want to end on considering with you what is our motivation in all of this? What is our motivation to find practical ways to remember the poor among us? So that's where we're going. That's my road map. Let's begin again by hearing Galatians 2.10. Paul writes, only they asked us. He's talking about the other apostles in Jerusalem that we looked at last week. He says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, last week we saw that Paul, together with Barnabas and Titus, they went up to Jerusalem 
And Paul went up to Jerusalem in order to meet with the other apostles there and to lay before them, to set before him the gospel of Jesus Christ that he had been preaching for 14 years among the, the Gentile or the non-Jewish peoples in that part of the world. Now, in Acts 11, before Paul and Barnabas and Titus went up to Jerusalem, in Acts 11, we read about a prophet named Agabus, and it says that he foretold that there would be a great famine over all the world. All the known world at that time, there was a great famine coming, and Agabus foretold this by prophecy. And because of that, in verses 29 and 30, here's what we read. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders, the elders in the church in Jerusalem, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. Saul is Paul, Paul is Saul. Here's the thing we need to realize. Things were already very difficult for uh, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea. See, these are Jewish people that had come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But because many Jewish people rejected that good news... Those people that believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah were persecuted for their faith. In fact, they were thrown, they were literally cut off from the whole Jewish community. They were thrown out of the synagogues. Many uh, followers of Jesus at that time were, were rejected by their family members, disowned. Many of them lost their livelihoods. And if we looked in the book of Acts, we'd learn that some even lost their lives. Some were persecuted to the point of death, to the point of being martyred for their faith. And now Agabus says there's a famine coming. So things are already really tough, but they're they're about to get a lot tougher. Not only are they being persecuted, But poverty and perhaps even starvation are real, tangible, looming threats to these believers, these followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea. That's the picture here. See, but even though many of the Christians in Antioch, they came from a a Gentile background, they wanted to help. They wanted to send relief to help their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church in Jerusalem and the churches in Judea. Because both Jews and Gentiles are together in Christ one new humanity. That's something we saw clearly last week. And so they had a heart to relieve the plight of the the persecuted and the impoverished believers in Jerusalem and Judea. It was the right thing to do. 
It was a tangible expression of these brothers in Antioch to show to the brothers and sisters in Judea and Jerusalem that they had fellowship with Christ through the gospel. They were members one of another. They had an obligation to care for each other. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem told Paul to continue remembering the poor, Paul said, of course. Of course, that's the very thing I am eager to do. I'm not going to stop doing that. That's a natural implication of being a Christian, to care for others. This is, this is a major priority. In fact, later on in the book of Galatians, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially those in the church. So here we see that the concern for the well-being of others prioritizes but also goes beyond the church. Let me read that to you again. As we have opportunity, that's important, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the heart of a Christian. And that's the context of Galatians. But as I said, this isn't just an isolated incident. This isn't a one-off This is something that we need to understand taps into the heart of God and is revealed throughout the entire Bible. And so that's what I want to do. I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at some other passages that tap into this same theme. For example, in Leviticus 23, 22, we read, And when you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, probably not a lot of farmers here, I'm guessing. Maybe Brant. Are you kidding me? You drive to that guy's place out in Mission there where he grew up and his farms everywhere. I'm, I'm talking your language, right? But for us, more sophisticated city folk, (laughs) what what God is saying to the Israelites is, is don't squeeze everything out of your harvest. Leave the edges. Don't, Don't cut it right to the edge. Leave that. And after you've gleaned through the field once, all the stuff that's left behind, leave that too. Why? Because of the poor, because of the sojourner, because of the refugee. See, this is the heart of God being lived out in the life of his people. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't try to make every squeeze, every last dollar. Think of those who are less fortunate. And make provision for them. Every time you harvest. 
Look at Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. This is the heart of God being lived out in the life of his people. Look at later on in Deuteronomy 15, verses 10 and 11, we read, Give generously and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Perhaps the Lord allowed poor people in the land to test the hearts of his people. That's applicable for us. What are our hearts saying when we cross the street to avoid an uncomfortable person? What are our hearts saying when we avoid the addressing the needs of others around us. This same concern, we could look all over the Psalms. We could look in detail at the wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. But my favorite are the prophets. The prophets are perhaps God's most vocal defenders of the poor and the marginalized people. In Isaiah 1.17, here's what the Lord says. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Later in Isaiah 58, the Lord, in the context, the Lord is, the, the, the nation of Israel has been fasting. And the Lord says, I reject your fasting. Here is the fast that I approve of, that I require of you, he says in verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. See, ultimately, God calls his people to, to remember the poor and to find practical ways to provide for them because that is the heart of God. And above all things, we must be a people who are responding to the heart of God. We must be a people that God's heart is, is a heart that we're seeking to cultivate in ourselves. And this is uppermost for him in his heart. As I said earlier on, God identifies very closely with the poor. In fact, in Jesus' public ministry, when he began his public ministry in Nazareth, 
Luke 4 tells us that Jesus turned to Isaiah 61. He was in the synagogue. He turned to Isaiah 61, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, through all of his ministry and his miracles, we need to realize that, yes, Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. But it went beyond the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was showing what the power of God's kingdom looks like when it's being lived out in the lives of others. And so captives were set free. The poor were taken care of. The, the broken were healed. Second Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself. God is not satisfied. God, it is not part of God's plan merely to save your soul and somehow over the next 30, 40, 50 years sort of somehow get you to heaven. The work of God in our lives, if He has forgiven our sins, if He has made us new creatures in Christ, it will be lived out. It will be seen. The kingdom, we will be a people that are demonstrating the power of the kingdom to reconcile all things to God through Jesus Christ. And it will be seen in the way that we remember the poor, meet their needs. We have to be people who seek to bring peace and provision, justice and help to others around us. The church is the means that the Lord is using to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel to a broken world. I recognize this is not easy. This is not comfortable. This was a difficult message to prepare this week. I have not even begun to arrive at living this out well in my life. But together, by the grace of God, we can begin to walk this out. Consider what, what Jesus' brother James says in James 2. This is, this is a warning to us. He says... In James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's easy to talk, isn't it? It's a whole lot more difficult to walk. It's faith that does not bring forth a change in life and, and give us a heart to find sacrificial and generous ways to help others in need around us is dead faith. It cannot, it will not save us. It's a faith of the lips and not of the life. 
John, the very disciple whom Jesus loved so much, writes in 1 John 3, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, remembering the poor, it's a love issue. It's a love issue that begins with the love of God displayed at the cross and working on our hearts to become a people who embody that sort of sacrificial love toward others. So that's what a little bit of what the rest of the Bible teaches. This Paul in Galatians 2.10 isn't just addressing one little issue way back 2,000 years ago. This is an issue that that covers the whole scope of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And this is an issue that ought to concern everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to remember the poor or to do good to everyone as we are able and especially to the household of faith? What does that look like? Three things. And I think this represents a very modest proposal for us. We're a a young church, a, a newer church, and so we have to make baby steps. So three things that I think represent a modest proposal in the right direction for Christ City. First, and, and none of this will get off the ground if we don't start here. We need to be able to, take, to, to, to discern the needs that other people have. And quite frankly, that means that we've got to stop focusing so relentlessly on ourselves, pursuing our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, our stuff. That means we've got to slow down. That means we've got to take time to notice other people. One of our prayers from before we planted is that we would guard against being a a cliquey people where we just sort of huddle in herds of like-minded friends. I pray that we would be a people who have eyes to see the stranger, uh, the person that comes in who's very quiet and We don't know their story. It's amazing to take the time to listen to another's story and engage with their lives and take them out for coffee and listen. But we can't do that if we're busy running here and there and everywhere. We've got to slow down. We've got to ask questions. And then when that person begins to tell, ask another question and continue to listen. Share your life with others. Invest your life in others. This takes time. It's very costly. If we do that, we're not going to be able to do some of the other fun stuff. But I think we will discover something much richer, much better. So we we must love people more than we love our stuff. Second, 
We need to cultivate, and I pray that a message like this is, is helping to do that. I, I do not want this morning's message to land on anyone with a sense of condemnation and failure and a sense of, I can never do this. I want you to hear the Spirit of God moving in your hearts to nudge you in the direction of being able to do this. But we have to cultivate hearts that are willing and and able to learn about the needs of others and then to take action. And then to seek in practical ways to meet those needs that others have in sacrificial generosity. We should be people who are sacrificially generous as we are able. And if we are loving our stuff less, guess what? We'll be more able. We don't need the latest model car. We don't need the latest uh, Amana refrigerator. We don't need uh, an extra two weeks vacation. And I am so encouraged by some people who moderate their lives in order to make room for others. I'm aware of people in this room who could live a a, a much more lavish lifestyle, but don't because of this. I love what Deuteronomy says. We're to be a people that are open-handed and, and, and freely giving without grudging hearts. Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And there's something wonderful about finding it in ourselves to give. To meet the need of a brother or sister or friend or neighbor. God is honored. Rodney Stark writes about how the sacrificial generosity of the church was so important in helping the spread of Christianity throughout the ancient world. Here's what he writes. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity, as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social stability. That's how it happened then. And this is what God is calling us to now. It's, it's a different context, different time. But we've got to find a way. We've got to pray into this. We've got to work this out. I am so thankful that we as a church, a, a young church, have been able to help a number of refugee families, people that have come out of horrific situations. And we as a church have been able to, to support them and provide some housing. I am so thankful that we as a church have been able to help temporarily help those who have lost their jobs. We've been able to help widows and single mothers. That's just the beginning. More individually, people in the church, I've seen people in this church help others get out of debt, find a more affordable place to live, and that's a miracle in the city, get a better job, 
find child care, take a much-needed vacation, repair vehicles, do home repairs, cut lawns, be there to help someone recover from a surgery or an illness. As we grow and mature and as a church, we, we must be, this is the heart of God, we must be a people who are, are able and willing to meet the needs of others around us. Third thing, we must implement ways to do this wisely and justly. Let me just say this. Poverty is, is, not, um, is not always a simple problem. Alita Thomas writes, Poverty is not simply an economic issue, and thus a truly transformative approach to walking with the poor means addressing the emotional, emotional social, physical, political, and economic factors that keep people or whole communities trapped in systemic poverty or marginalization. I would encourage you, in fact, I would encourage all of us um, to pick up a book like this. This is called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. It's by Steve Corbett and Brian Thickert. I would encourage you to get and read this book. It's, it's full of insight to help us do this wisely and justly. Unfortunately, sometimes helping, even though it's got the best intentions, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes there are unintended consequences in the way that we help. And that is not a reason to, to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's so complicated, I can't do anything about it. No, I just told you a book. You can order it on Amazon today. And this will help us think through and talk about and, and work out in the future uh, ministries that will be able to wisely and justly meet the needs of those who are less fortunate in our community. So here's a question I can imagine somebody would have. As we seek to remember the poor, somebody might think, well, what is the difference about the way the church approaches this problem and all those other non-Christian or secular organizations that are out there? Good question. And that, I think, leads to our final point about the motivations for remembering the poor. See, the thing is that in a, in a post-Christian secular culture like ours, social justice is actually borrowing from the social justice established by the church over 2,000 years. That's where that whole idea came from. And in this way, uh, secular social justice is, is, seeking to, is seeking to maintain the ethics of God's kingdom while at the same time rejecting the king himself. And I would suggest that uh, that removes the sustaining power for, for being able to successfully carry this out. Uh, as I said a moment ago, we, we need to realize that there are, are many approaches to social justice that actually um, create unintended consequences for 50 years plus now 
in the United States, there's been a war on poverty. Well, uh, many people would suggest that actually that has exacerbated the problem of poverty. Also, if this is not done from the right motive, here's what can happen. Those who are dispensing justice can, can become very paternalistic. I am higher than you, and I will look after your needs, and you will rely upon me, and I feel much better about myself. Thank you very much. And this is, this is very common. It's a way of patting ourselves on the back and feeling better than the, the benighted masses around us. Of course, no one would say it that way. But this is a tendency because of the human heart. Anyway, on the other hand, the church can really blow this too. <laughs> and it has on many occasions. And this is why we, we, we need to do this wisely. Here's where we can blow it. We can proclaim the king, but really not be interested in living out the ethics of his kingdom. We can think it's all about evangelism. It isn't. It's not about just the forgiveness of sins. It's about changed lives. And John said that. And James said that. And Isaiah said that. And Moses said that. And Paul said that. It's in every book of the Bible. And so we are failing to tap into the heart of God. If all we do is proclaim the king but refuse to live out these, these new life ethics that, that flow from the king and express his reign and his rule over the world. We've got to do both. It's words and deeds. So where do we find the motivation for this? Where do we find the motivation to, to live sacrificial and generous lives to help meet the needs of the poor and the marginalized around us? Well, we look to Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus. Our hearts, our hearts must be captured, must be made alive with a vision of what Christ has done for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And when Paul says we might become rich, he's not talking about cars and cash. He's talking about the riches of his glorious inheritance that we have together. In Christ. He's talking about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's talking about the riches of being completely forgiven and reconciled to God and adopted into his family and being participants in his present and coming kingdom. We are rich, my friends, beyond measure, beyond imagination. If you're in Christ here this morning, he has made you rich. So tap in to that that richness that you have in a crucified and risen Savior who reigns over your life and reigns over your car and your home and your cash and your clothes and might be saying to you right now, enough's enough. You don't need that thing you were looking on yesterday online. Put it away. Be ready. Put it away. Make provision. As you are able, make provision. 
because I'm going to begin to send people your way. I want you to notice their needs. I want you to move toward them. I want you to listen to the story and get in their lives. And I want you to begin to make a difference in people that have so much less than you. I want you to help to make their lives better. I want you to, to take that yoke of bondage and poverty that they has been resting on their lives, maybe for generations in their family. We get to be a part of that. Let me close with this. In 1830 in Scotland, Robert Murray McShane preached on the text, it is better to give than to receive. And this is what he said. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And then he says, someone might object. My money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forces it from me. And then where should we be? Objection, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much. Give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is blessed to give, more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you and your great grace to us would stir in our hearts to realize how unfathomably rich we really are and how you've entrusted us with this richness to reorganize our lives, to change up our priorities, to move our focus off of things and onto people and to become, to become interested and to become good listeners and to develop a, a care, uh, to, to develop a heart to come alongside others and wisely care for others in their need, to meet their needs, to find practical ways to do that. Lord, make us that kind of people. This is your heart. And we're, we're asking you, pour out your spirit afresh on us that we would, we would look more and more like Jesus and give our lives away for the benefit and blessing of others. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.